0: Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights for making money in food. The Edible Alpha podcast is hosted by the Food Finance Institute, where our mission is to help food businesses raise the money they need to grow. Through our podcast, FFI staff talks to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food or farm
1: business. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Edible Alpha podcast. I'm Andy Larson, a farm financial consultant for FFI and Uh, Wisconsin Small Business Development Centers. And today we're here with Chaz Self of Grassway Organics, which is a grass-based livestock and agritourism farm in southeastern Wisconsin. Good morning, Chaz. Good morning, Andy. Thanks Thanks for being here today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you have a, a, a pretty cool background that Uh, I'd love people to get to know just a little bit about your origin story. Can you give us the sort of concise version of your uh, starting up in farming, your origins in in California, I believe, is where you hail from, and how you got here and doing the type of farming you're doing?
2: Yeah, you bet. Um, Yeah, so my name is Chad Self. Um, Right now, currently, we're just under 600 acres, uh, grass-based dairy, um, beef, and poultry. And like Andy said, we also do agritourism, where we do pizza on the farm uh, every Friday and Saturday throughout the weekend. Um, When we started, I didn't actually grow up in Santa Cruz, California, and never set foot on a farm until I was 19. And um, my wife, uh, she also did not grow up on a farm, but she had some aunts and uncles who farmed way up north in Thorpe, Wisconsin. Um, And Mm. my original story (laughs) in high school, I, I moved from San Diego, California to Stevens Point, Wisconsin which, if anyone is familiar, was very heartbreaking at the time. It was the end <laughs> of the world for me, being 15 to, to central Wisconsin, uh, but shortly fell in love with it, um, and forever will be a home here in Wisconsin, and won't we'll go back to California at this point, because I have no desire to, um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, being 19, I was like a gung-ho vegan activist, ALF activist, that um, had no idea what farming entailed, and One day I was watching this uh, PETA video of a dairy farmer beating up a calf. In the back of my mind, I'm like, well, milk comes from the grocery store. Why is this milk, why is this calf getting beat up by a farmer? And so I was like, I need to figure out what farming is. I don't even know what that is. I don't know where my food comes from. I didn't know anything. So um, Mm. that day, I ended up calling Midstate Technical College in Marshfield, Wisconsin. And they had a two-year technical degree in farm management program. It was very cheap at the time, and I loved it because I didn't know anything about it. So here's this uh, you know, <laughs> wet-behind-the-ears kid who had never been on a farm, and I started school two weeks later. Uh, they enrolled me into this farm management program, which I have a degree in now, and they got me a job milking on a CAFO of 350 cows, um, and they had a place to live, which was also great. It was just perfect, and I remember the first time I set foot on a farm, I was milking cows at this CAFO, And I was walking next to the son, who's, you know, six foot seven towering over me. And I was like, what's the difference between a (laughs) cow? Like, that's how naive I was getting into farming. And he thought it was the funniest (laughs) thing in the world. Um, And so for two years, or for the first winter, I milked cows, 350 um, dairy cows in Marshfield. Absolutely loved the family, um, loved the job. Um, Unfortunately, it's not the way I chose to farm. Um, but it basically yeah. taught me everything I did want to do. Um, and that really got me, oh, my eyes opening to how big, um, the agricultural world really is when you're so naive. So since then, um, you know, it's been a long journey to kind of finally find my own niche and be exactly where I want to be. Um, but from there we worked on vegetable farms. Um, we ended up, I ended up milking cows, 35 cows conventionally for a guy down the road. And then we ended up um, in 2016 seeing an ad in the organic broadcaster that said retiring farmers looking to pass business on. And um, at, the, at the time, I was working um, brewing beer, and I really liked that job. And I was like, I have to farm. If I don't do it now, I don't know when I'm ever going to do it. So we took a drive right. down to New Holstein, Wisconsin, from Stevens Point, and uh, we met with these my mentors, Wayne and Kay. Um, and it was a, a little bit of an unusual area New Holstein. Um, it was very, um, it, was, it was not our style, let's put it nicely, um, but uh, our mentors were old, old. They were just like myself, but older. It was it was a really unique situation <laughs> for us to be part of them because they were so driven to be grass-based. They were, you know, had a farm store. Um, they were milking about 120 cows. They were very successful. They were retiring out of debt. And we had the opportunity to to take over for them. And so it was quite the blessing for us to meet them when we did. And so in 2016, I quit my job and we worked for them for one year full time. And then we ended up buying the business, the cows, the equipment, um, the store, the store inventory, basically everything um, except the land and the buildings. And that was due to because if you're with the farm financing through FSA, we took the first-time farm loan, which we maxed out. And after one year, you're allowed to take the next max out for a land purchase. So that was the step goal to basically buy them out in sections, which if there's anyone that is looking to take over a farm, there's a lot of people that will get into those processes. Um, and that was ours. So at one year, um, we ended up, you know, needing to have a bigger cash flow because we had an insane amount of debt. So my wife yeah. and I started a food truck with what's now a really big thing called Pizza on the Farm.
1: So in the <laughs> humble
2: origins, we ended up having a food truck um, that had wood fired oven on it. Um, we ended up buying it turnkey from Michigan, and we ended up milking in the morning and milking at night. And then my wife and I would be like. Sell twenty pizzas on a Friday, and we'd be like, "Whoa, this is so cool! People want to buy pizza on a farm," and we were really not, you know, naive at the time. <laughs> like this is great. Um, to now, where I have a full commercial kitchen, I have fifteen employees, and we're doing over two hundred pieces a day um, on the weekends, and it turned into this fabulous community, vibrant thing in Wisconsin. And we're really, really happy to be a part of it for so long now. Um, and that was a really lucrative um, step for us to be able to financially be where we are now. Um, And that did, we we were never in, we never got into farming to make pizzas. That was never the plan. Um, But, you know, if anyone's familiar with the agricultural world, it's it's extremely hard to make money. Um, So we had to find a way to do it and pizza was our option. And so um, that really stemmed into something that we can't, we're so grateful for. It's amazing. We love it. And what most people don't realize is that most people don't have access to a real farm. And it's our gift mm. to be able to have people come to the farm because I didn't have the option when I was a kid. I didn't have any of the options, so um, it was a really great community builder for us to get involved with that. Um, I'm sorry I went on the tangent. And this just means a lot to us for pizza. But um, once that uh, <laughs> once pizza took over we kind of got everything going. Um, we went through the first time farm loan to buy all the equipment and the machinery. And then they gave us one year to buy. And so after one year, we came up with what we thought was a, a very, a very cushioned retirement for the retiring farmers and a stretch for us to pay. But we think we could do it. So we put an offer on mm-hmm. 210 acres and all the buildings. And within about two hours, they called me back and said that the local CAFO tripled my offer. And they said it was nothing personal, Ow. but you got to leave. So we ended up losing that farm in two thousand seventeen. Um we ended up losing the ground underneath us and so they gave us nine months to move a farm. And if anyone's, you know, is familiar with moving a house, we moved a farm and it was fifty eight semis, um, which was quite the experience <laughs> but I don't ever want to do it the rest
0: of my life. Oh so my god, up, I, I uh, hate like
1: in- moving in pickup trucks. I can't even imagine fifty eight semis. That's that's oh. a. That's a yeah, big deal.
2: It was, it was a long, quite the road trip. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was quite. It, it was a lot of work for us. I mean, now I don't know how we did it, looking back. But it was. We we really lucked out because um, if anyone is familiar with the grazing world and the grasswork world, um, Alfred Krusenbaum is kind of like the the idol in our world. And Alfred was actually a good friend of mine previously from a, an experience. And I ended up calling him like three months before we had to leave. And I asked him if he knew of any farms that were coming available for for rent or sale or, And we were trying to do anything we could. Um and he said, mm-hmm. Well, why don't you give the Yggdrasil Land Foundation a call just to see where they're at? Um so we're in a unique situation because we are in a 30-year rental contract with the land foundation. And the Yggdrasil ah. Land Foundation is part of uh the future of farming is how I see it. Um there are a gr- the board members that have invested in Land to continue young farmers to keep going, so it allows us to pay rent and not have to take this massive amount of debt load um, for for buying land. And it was really a dream for us. So um, we knew the situation getting into this, and we were like, "Well, maybe they have something." And so we ended up calling, and I called um, the Utah Land Foundation, and like talking, introducing myself, and talking a little bit. To Dorothy at the time, you know, I didn't know Dorothy at the time, but Dorothy. Ended up almost in tears because the person that was on our farm that we are currently had only been here for six months and had given up. He wanted to give his one-year warrant. He was one-year leave. He couldn't handle it. It was too much for him. So it was quite this wow. serendipitous moment for us to be like, "Wow, we just came up and our current farm now is 390 acres um, that we rent, and then we rent additional 150." Um, for forage. And um, we ended up being what everyone, we call it the golden triangle. So we're 30 minutes from Milwaukee. We're an hour from Madison. We're about an hour 15 from Chicago. So it's a wonderful area. The farm was perfect. It was built in 1999. It was the perfect size we needed. And so we did it. We ended up embarking on renting a 30-year rental contract and now transforming where we are now into what we to what we really wanted and that took a long time uh we've been here almost we've been here over five years um and it's been quite um yeah an, an amazing step for us to be able to survive losing a farm and moving and now thriving in a you know a world that is it's desperate to know where their food comes from so
1: very yeah, cool so it. i'm I'm, so. I'm super excited to dig in with the uh, with the pizza on the farm and with Yggdrasil and all that kind of stuff, but let me get just a couple more, like, background and production system things, because one of the people the people who are listening to this generally want to hear about the production system, too, and you've got some pretty neat high points. Um, so you, one of the in your, in your sort of trajectory, you also spend some time dairying in Norway at the small scale, is that correct? Yeah,
2: that is correct. We live um, almost a year and a half, we were in and out of Norway, milking 14 cows um, on a small biodynamic farm, um, which also second as a school. So ah. um, being, uh, <laughs> you know, being 20 years old and just getting into farming, you know, all the answers lie in Europe, of course, because that's how it goes. <laughs> years and, um, I thought all the answers to the world's problems were in Europe. And um, I ended up taking a flight into Sweden, and I picked up a program called Woofing, which is the worldwide opportunity for organic farmers. And it's basically, yep. if nobody's if you're not familiar with it, it's just a volunteer program. You work four to six hours a day, and they provide you room and board. Um, and it's a really good way to meet the local culture. So I woofed in Sweden um, at the time, and then I was really jonesing to get back on a dairy farm. Um, so the only dairy farm in Norway that had a, an option for woofing was in the middle of Norway. Um, about four hours north of Oslo, and I was like, "Well, I'm already this far; I might as well go." And um, I ended up showing up, and it was kind of like a dream situation for me. Um, it was a school, so there was in Norway. The their their schooling's a little different, but from 14 to 17, they go to like basically any high, They call it a college that they would go to, and ours was that. So it was to learn biodynamic farming, um, dairy farming, and basically uh, vegetable production. So the school was set up pretty wonderfully. They had dorm rooms. It was a small community. Everyone ate together. I went to a kitchen. Um, it was all communal. And then um, there was a dairy farmer. There was a vegetable farmer. You know, there was teachers. And so we, I was like, this is my dream job. I want to be here forever. I never wanted to leave um, <laughs> Norway. So, um, and this was only the first. I went to a two-year program through MidState and Marshfield. So this was the first winter, and so one summer one summer had hit, and I had been in Norway the whole time. I decided to come home. Um, I decided to come home and finish school, because I just felt yeah. like the degree was important. And then right before graduation, actually two days before graduation, I get a phone call from, from Norway, the farm I was woofing on, and they said, hey, the farmer had an accident. Would you be willing to come back? And I was like, absolutely. So my wife and I and we ended up staying just under just over nine months until basically it was time we had to go we didn't have an option at that point um because we didn't we weren't our occupation wasn't considered rare enough to stay in norway so we came not oh. but uh, norway was quite the experience for me it was 14 uh dairy cows um grass only um and if anyone's familiar with that part of the world it's light 24 hours a day in the summer and then it's dark 24 hours a day in the winter um so it was it was a very small scale um sustainable um program that they had run and and i and i say that lightly because i don't want people to get you know all up in arms about socialism but the way the farming is set up in norway is that if you choose to have an occupation as a farmer they don't worry about production so and i mean that by saying you don't get paid based on how much milk you're producing you get paid a living wage no matter because of your occupancy. So in Norway, it really opened my eyes to, you know, a, a different light and a different, a different set of ways that I am, I, you know, I'm still fond of to this day. Um, so in Norway, if you, it is, you have to take a minimum of six weeks vacation a year, end of story. So in Norway, <laughs> if you're a dairy farmer, they actually have a government program that comes out and watches your farm as you take vacation. And this really like, <laughs> I was like, wow. I was like, I can't believe programs on me. This is, exists but the the quality of life there is so much greater for farmers that it really like was like I this is what I want to do this is how I want my farm to be and this is how I want to model things that I look after and yeah I, I only take once we only take one week off every 5 or 6 years but you know that's better than all dairy farmer
1: <laughs> Yes I agreed <laughs> I, I think so. after growing up on the dairy farm, I think we took one vacation when I was 21, the day after we sold the cows. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so
2: you know the grind, and I think that's tough. You know, I think that's really hard on, on especially dairy, and, and I'm going to talk a lot about dairy. So if we want to get off topic, please do. But you know, dairy is a very, very tough situation for guys, and it's it's sad to see how how our country has adapted to such mega industrial farming. Um, compared to where we're if we were just to pay these small farms a living wage and to be successful and healthy, you know, our rural communities wouldn't have died. We wouldn't have all these issues in rural communities. We would have had so many jobs continuing if we had just paid a good good amount of money for for dairy. and in Norway, it's still going strong. So fourteen cows is pretty average. um they have cows the low herds as low as three cows, and then their biggest herd is one hundred and forty five in the valley close to Oslo. so, um, it was really cool to see how that works because they also don't import any dairy, so that all the dairy stays in Norway, and that was really interesting to me to see that the socialistic um, idealism works and it works really well there. Um, and that, that that was really what I took away from Norway. It was the most, and besides being very beautiful, the farm there was twenty seven thousand acres, so it was pretty. <laughs> you could get lost for a while if you really wow. wanted to. So. 27,000
1: acres and 14 cows interesting (laughs) well so (laughs) you you came back to a situation where the the obviously the social program was certainly a lot different for dairy farmers but the farm that you started probably resembled more closely the typical farm that you were describing in Norway as opposed to the the typical farm in Wisconsin or even the United States, because, you know, dairy farms nowadays, you know, more than 50% of our dairy production comes from farms that have a thousand plus cows. And so I think when you got started, you only had around, you had around 35, is that correct?
2: That is correct. Absolutely. And we have grown the
1: herd since then? Yep. And
2: this morning we ate milk 46. So we are, okay. we're growing. We're getting big now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you still are, are kind of modeling yourself more after some of those systems that you learned about in Norway as far as being intensively grass-based, rotational. Are you seasonal as well in your dairy production? Um,
2: unfortunately, I am not. I, I dream of going back to seasonal, uh, but for the product that I supply to my community, uh, we don't take time off. And in, in it seems to be if we were to be seasonal financially, we couldn't handle that either, um, even though I would love to be. So we are what is, I'm considered technically seasonal twice. So I'm spring and fall. So I only count okay. six weeks out of the year. It's very intense in the spring and it's very intense in the fall. So it's um, a little bit different. But, yeah, I, I wish I could model being seasonal. That would be wonderful because winter is tough. If anyone, I mean, it's just tough in general for everybody. For equipment, for us, for the cows. um, But we are still
1: year-round. Okay. And our... So you're milking jerseys almost exclusively, correct?
2: Yep. A2A2. Okay.
1: So that's... That's what I wanted you to, to, to talk about just a little bit more. So first off, whoever does your social media, like the hashtag Jersey Girls made me so freaking happy. I love that, about, <laughs> that you were using that uh, when you showed pictures of your cows. So A2A2, A2, um, that is something that is specific to certain cattle genetics. And I'd love it if you could talk a little bit more about what A2A2 A2 milk is and what the benefits are.
2: Yeah, uh, it's a great question and it's it's a it's a complicated world um but in in the short of it um what most people are used to are conventional Holstein cows which are the largest producing cows on in the planet right now they are the only mammal that carries what's called an A1 A1 beta protein mutation now that's found genetically and that actually passes through to the milk so the first time okay. in, in human history we're seeing a mammal come up with this mutation, and we don't know what it is. We don't know. We, there, there's been a lot of research on it now, and finally, the industry is taking a hold of what, you know, the now A2 is becoming a thing. Uh, but when we learned about it about 10 years ago, there was research done in New Zealand between what would be considered like an original bloodline. So, for instance, there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I'm lactose intolerant, but I can drink goat's milk. You're actually not lactose mm-hmm. intolerant, you're one intolerant. So the huge part of the the population is already A1 intolerant because they can't handle it, which usually gets blamed on being lactose intolerant, which is unfortunate because there is a a distinction there. Not saying lactose isn't a thing, um, but there is a lot of people that are actually A1 beta casein um, allergic, you would say. Um, Our cows are A2A2, goats are A2A2, sheep are A2A2, and humans are A2A2 so we consider basically being one of the closer of the original bloodlines um to the original cows that were almost you know not domesticated
0: 2000 years okay. ago
2: um hence why our cows are much built much smaller um, most Holstein cows will sit between 2000 and 2500 pounds. um i just had a jersey that <laughs> she weighed 750 pounds, which was <laughs> you got kind of to just size and give about half half a pound of milk um but that quality of milk is what we're after, so you see that a lot when it comes to the A1 A2 and 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 I'm not saying A2 is the solution, and I'm not trying to bash anyone that's milking Holstein cows that are A1 A1 A1, A1. but we've seen now research that there's a lot of you know diseases that are linking back to this beta beta protein mutation, and so in, instead of arguing or being like, well that's not true. We just took the research for what it was and said, okay, we don't even want to take the risk. We want all our cows to be A2-A2. So um, jerseys have the highest amount of A2-A2 in the bloodline. And my jerseys specifically, I consider them what would be kind of North American jerseys. Um, they're actually much okay. smaller than your their sisters in New Zealand. Um, in New Zealand, they get kind of pampered with the weather. And when we're in Wisconsin and it's 45 below, I still need my cows to be milking. So we breed for right. a much smaller size stockier um, cow that's able to handle more temperature differences as well as be more efficient on eating grass. So just a fun statistic, uh, out of dairy, let's just say all the dairy cows, 99% of them are conventional. Of those cows, 1% of them are organic, and of that 1% are only grass-fed only. So grain is a huge crutch for a lot of dairy farmers. Cows are not designed to eat grain. They never have been able to de- design to eat grain, and they won't be able to adapt to eat grain. So when you introduce grain into a cow's diet is when I feel a lot of the problems are happening in the industry. You're getting overproduction. You're getting low-life plans. You know, you're getting cows that are calving within you know, a year and a half. You get a lot of the major industrial issues once you feed grain. So we're one of a very, very handful of herds left that are grass-only. We feed no grain ever at all to our cows.
1: Okay. Also, so uh, just for, for for some clarity for our listeners like the the black and white holsteins right large frame as much milk as possible generally dairy farmers are paid on the the volume of milk that they produce it's measured in hundredweights and they get paid per hundredweight by the cooperative that they sell to. So you Chaz, you're, you're saying you're intentionally giving up a certain volume of production in exchange for a certain quality of milk, a ser- a smaller quantity of milk, but it, it, that also is going to require a different type of market. Can you talk about how your your milk gets sold to the end consumer?
2: Yeah, um, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk about this a little bit. Um, it, it has been a very long, long, intense battle with the state of Wisconsin. Uh, we don't mind talking about it now because we've been through some due diligence, but. Um, If any listener is aware, um, Wisconsin was illegal to sell raw milk for a very long time. And for the last 10 years, a lot of things have changed. So um, this isn't a go ahead for anyone that's milking cows to go, I'm going to go sell raw milk and be legal because you're not going to work that way. Um, But how we set up our model is through a co-op membership. So I don't actually sell, um, I don't sell my product to Um, The consumer without them being a a liable co-op membership or in the legal Mm. terms, we call it a bona fide ownership. So it's the same thing that would happen if you want to go to the Willys co-op. We have exactly the same thing. Um, And we do that because in the statutes of Wisconsin, that is the the, one of the legal routes to do it. Um, So we are set up if anyone wants to come buy a product from us, you have to become a co-op membership, which is a $10 one time fee and it's $1 annually. So it's not going to break the bank. Um, but that no <laughs> our grade A license. So when you're tied into your, when the consumer would be tied into our grade A license, that allows that consumer to be able to consume their own product because they are a co-op bona fide ownership. So um, if there's anyone out there that wants to get, you know, anyone listening that's like, wow, this sounds like a really great idea. Um, the Raw Milk Institute out of California has pioneered some amazing changes in the dairy world. Um, they also helped us pioneer some changes in Wisconsin and anyone that has some like legal issues and anyone that really feels like they don't know what's going on the farm to consumer legal defense fund um, is a huge backer behind us. And they are just, their absolute godsend for us because they're attorneys that work at a tenth of the price and it costs us, you know, a, a $125 a year. And if there's any legal issues that we run into, we pull all the money together and we're covered. So. There's, there's been a lot of changes in the state. Um, we feel, especially after our meetings with the state, we would have liked to make more and we would have liked to make a clear path towards um, some form of legalization, but they were not interested at mm-hmm. the time. And I understand there's COVID and things are changing and there's a lot going on right now in the world, um, but the arm and consumer is totally allowed to consume our product as long as they're bona fide ownership. So that's how we do it.
1: And so, to become an owner like that, ten bucks. Uh, I mean, can you walk onto your farm and become a, a ten dollar fractional owner of Grassway Organics, like right there? Or does it have to be something that's set up in advance? Is there, you know, a pledge or anything <laughs> that yeah. you have to do no, in order to shop question. at your at your farm store? Yeah,
2: it's a great question. Um, you know, you did you did go back to we said seasonal. Um, we do have times when we're very very low on product. So when that mm. happens, we do not new members on. Um, so during the grass season, we're always taking new members as much as we can. And then it kind of fizzles off towards winter. Once we start to hit the really harsh month, um, we do dry, gotcha. drop in production quite a bit. But yes, you can either walk on farm and you can sign our membership um, agreements or you can do it online. Um, we've been blessed. And, you know, I wouldn't say blessed, but we've been fortunate enough (laughs) to be set up to have online deliveries, especially COVID. Um, COVID was a huge boost for us because people, you know, were were scared to go into the supermarket. But we actually have an online store that's completely 100 percent, just like uh, if anyone's familiar with the CSA, um, those models, that model exists for us. And we do really, really well with it. So we have drop spots all the way north up to Appleton. In um, Madison, we have multiple drop spots, Milwaukee, and then all the way down in Kenosha. So we do deliver um, quite a bit online.
1: Excellent. Yeah, so you mentioned, you know, winters being harsh in Wisconsin, and people who live around here understand that. Um, and, the, you know, production going down a little bit. We tend to have snow cover, we tend to have snow, cold temperatures. You're a grass based farm. What do you have to do for your cows and your other critters in order to get them through some of those? tougher winter months
2: yeah <laughs> good question yeah so without the supplement of grain um it you have to be really really good at making high quality forage um and it, mm-hmm. i'm not gonna get too much detail because it is but we feed a mixture of what we consider baleage and about 40 uh, percent dry hay so my main what i feel like as a farmer like i'm a really good forage farmer that's what i do um and to go grass-based only um i do bring in some i supplement some high grade really high-end alfalfa when it gets really really cold um just to make sure that they have enough energy because you know the milk is meant for the calf, and whatever is excessive is meant you know for you so to keep them going in those really cold weather um forage quality is the best that we've ever made is fed during those times and then recently I've been getting into a lot of um, what's considered – it's called Lassahol. It's kind of a – it's a unique product because it, it is like a fermented molasses because you can't feed molasses in the winter. It's not going to happen here. Um, and what this fermented molasses does is just basically give them enough energy. Um, it's sprayed right on top of the grass. It gives them enough energy to can, to have their body conditions stay the same. And then whatever they mm. eat as a forage allows them to produce milk. So I've been having pretty decent luck with it. It's very expensive. Um, I wish I could get away from it, but it's it's a it's an easy um, energy source for them without us having to spend extra money on really high quality forage. So okay. and and if, okay. the same, but we do do poultry as well, and the poultry do um, get grains. You know, poultry are designed to eat grains. Um, so we you know they they stay on the same ration pretty much year round. But they do do chickens, especially eggs, will drop in production because of the sunlight so you know they get it they have a big massive greenhouse where they can run as much as they want in the greenhouse and that seems to help a lot we actually saw about a 10 percent increase um from our dips um traditionally without a greenhouse so and it's nice because then the chickens can get out and run around and at least in the greenhouse because they do not like the snow at all (laughs)
1: yeah I can very seldom even get my chickens to go outside when there's snow cover on the ground it's like you have to give them a motivational speech right (laughs) yeah so I totally hear you I totally hear you um as far as the the store is concerned though you you have a you have a really cool store too it's not just it's not just milk that's available, right? People do Correct. come in, they buy milk, they have to bring their own container, if I remember correctly. But you've got a bunch of yeah. other products there too. I, I'd love to know a little bit more about, uh, so how you buy raw milk and also what are some of the other things that you're carrying in the store that are uh, specifically feature your farm and if you're carrying any products from other farms? Yeah,
2: yeah, great question. So we do have, I, I mean, I consider it a small co-op. Um, so we do all bulk goods. So if you actually bring your own jar in to fill um, bulk goods, which are all certified organic, um, we take 10% off. Um, we really like the cool. low trash store for popping up in Europe, and that's kind of how we modeled it originally. Um, it's changed a little bit over these last five years, um, but we sell all our own grass-fed, grass-finished beef. So any cut you could imagine, we sell right in the store. Um, we also carry um, Golden Bear. They're out of Keel, Wisconsin. They're a soy free corn-free, pork producers all on pasture and so we have every pork imaginable um they're such great farmers that we used to actually raise pigs and then i met them and i was like holy man they're doing such a phenomenal job we're just going to carry them so we ended up carrying golden bear we also work with a local farm in berlin that uh, new berlin that does um, sheep and goat for us which is really great and a nice addition as well um, and then we also sell from Delavan, Wisconsin, Pfeiffer wheat. Pfeiffer wheat is one of the last ancient grains, um, that are available. And the largest producer of it happens to be in Delavan, Wisconsin. Um, the Pounder brothers grow that for us, which is all the same flour that we serve our pizzas on. Um, so that's pretty cool mm. to get your wheat that close. Um, what else do we sell? And then of course, eggs, our, our own eggs, um, and then we also carry um, a lot of tinctures. We carry a lot of natural soaps, like dish detergent. A lot of the uh, housewares we carry, and then of course we have a really cool apparel scene for us. Uh, <laughs> we've had it, We've had fun sure. doing the new marketing. Got a lot of a lot of fun apparel ready. So, yeah, it's 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 more than just just the farm store, but it is a small co-op. I would just put it that way.
1: So and i saw a oh, video of uh, megan taking eggs out of the collection basket and putting them directly into the retail carton and i was so jealous because the, i'm over the border and in, in illinois and so it's the washing it's the grading it's the candling it's all of that kind of stuff and i was just like oh you live like in the promised land where you can <laughs> just sell nestron <laughs> eggs off the farm and we can too in illinois but we We don't have we don't have hundreds of people coming to our place every weekend either. (laughs) Um, And your store is actually right there in the Melkin Barn, correct? Did that ever pose any issues at all?
2: Um. So because technically legally we we are open to the public, but the only consumers that can buy from us are co-op members. Um, We have skated around that situation. Um, We do have a retail license, Mm. which is licensed by. Our wonderful, wonderful friends at DatCap. Um, so we have a yeah. retail license. We have a commercial kitchen for our food tr- for our pizza. Um, so we're licensed through that. And I have a grade A license. Um, when this barn that we're in now, with the store, was originally built um, in 1999, Christopher Mann, who built it, had a dream to have what is our store now actually be an education room for kids. So ah. um, there was actually all glass all that broke that in the parlor up and so his idea was that we'd have kids come in and see you milk and do all this sort of thing um you know it was abandoned for seven years when we got here so we were like nope we want to do an on-farm store um the, the owners of the farm uh were, was 100 behind us and so we ended up transforming it and it's still kind of transforming because i do have uh, it, it's not it's it's open to the public but like i said as a consumer you have to become a member so um, you know, it's we do have a bathroom. We have a commercial space to do processing if we wanted to, like bag goods or we do almonds stuff like that. We have a processing kitchen right mm-hmm. here on the, in, in the barn. Um, So yeah, we kind of lucked out with having the infrastructure here before we moved.
1: Well, it's a it's a pretty dreamy facility for people who are in you know alternative and regenerative agriculture, especially in dairy, because you got a nice parlor it's good cattle flow and then you've got the store and you've got the milk house and everything has got nice roofs on it and everything so i i just wanted to find out about the involvement of yggdrasil Is, are did they build the facilities on the farm you mentioned um, a person's name and i, I just i kind of wanted to know how that ownership worked are you renting the facilities as part of the farm or are they something you own separately, like a, with a condo agreement kind of thing? Or how does that work? Yeah, that, that's a wonderful
2: question. Um, so there's a lot of land foundations out there um, that are that are starting to do a lot of co-op membership like this. Um, but Yggdrasil Land Foundation originally was formed um, by, his name is Christopher Mann. Um, Christopher Mann mm-hmm. moved from Germany um, in the in the late 80s. And his envision for this community was to have a self-sustainable community built on this farm. So, and, um, you know, if if you get into communes and you get into that sort of relevance, that was his goal for this farm. Um, But when he moved in the 80s, he ended up starting to buy a lot of different lands and a lot of different farms because his envision was to be a community-driven, organic, regenerative farm. Um, Christopher Mann sadly passed away five years ago, actually the year we moved here. Um, And he entrusted all of his land into now what's called the Yggdrasil Land Foundation. Um, The Yggdrasil Mm -hmm. Land Foundation are beyond supportive of what we we do. Um, They are some of the most open-minded, amazing people we've ever met. Um, And honestly, we're only here because of them, of what they've been doing. But their mission is to continue to have young farmers thrive. And it's really difficult for people to realize that if a young farmer wants to get into to doing anything, row cropping or dairy or anything, you have to have land. And in my area, there isn't there isn't land that sells under $10,000 an acre. And really a high-quality agricultural land goes for double of that. So you can't yeah. – there's no young farmer that's going to – like, hey, I'm going to go buy 500 acres. It's not possible nowadays. And we had to learn that fact. And so the Irgisall Land Foundation took that responsibility of taking the land on. And we have what's called a triple net lease. So basically, I own, I basically own, if anything goes wrong, I have to fix it. That's part of my rent. And they that okay. is their goal for us to have, right? So they want us to feel like, okay, this is your farm. You can do what you want. You have to do this. But when things come up, you have to fix it. So um, it's a little different than most people are used to Land like to rent. Like usually if you're renting an apartment and the dishwasher goes out, they'll come fix it. That that does not happen in our situation with a triple net mm-hmm. lease. Um, so to, to help us, we have a long-term contract. So I have a 15 renewal, so I have a 30-year rental contract, which is phenomenal. It's the, it's the longest you can get in the state of Wisconsin. Um, and by doing that, they allow us, I wouldn't say cheaper rent, but affordable rent. make sure that we have enough money that's built up if something does go wrong so you know our boiler went out and that was six thousand dollar repair you know that that isn't ours it isn't physically ours i mean i do it is ours we live here and the board lives all over the world so we do we do have some (laughs) some physical ownership of it um but honestly without them we couldn't do it and i and i it's going to be very very hard it's going to be harder and harder for young people to get into farming If they choose to get on a scale that we want and they don't have a family farm or they don't have access to land, and these foundations, especially as grateful as, you know, we're so grateful for the Yggdrasil, are stepping in to fill those shoes. And the nice thing about our land foundation is that for the rest of its entire um, life, this land can never be developed for houses. And that that was Christopher Mann's biggest goal before he died, was to make sure that this land would never be developed for houses. So you got to understand that we're not making any more land. That's what people don't realize. And I call it the final crop, you know, when they start popping up houses everywhere. Um, now we're going to be able to get that land back to grow agriculture, and that's that's really, really tough tough pill for people to swallow because we're not making any more. And so if, if there were more foundations that would come in and start scooping land up and be able to take burden of having so much debt, or not, you know, depending on how they work it out, then it allows young farmers to come in with cheaper rents to have access to a farm like this.
1: So this is a, it it poses an interesting thing for the end of your farming career though. Like many farmers who are purchasing land, despite, you know, oftentimes being under, well, sometimes crushing debt burdens, right. Um, They're, they're building equity in that farm. Like, so they have a lot of farmers talk about their land being their retire, retirement, quote unquote, right. Um, very very few farmers actually do retire or sell the land right <laughs> uh, but but they talk about that so what does that mean for the uh, the end of your farming career when when you and megan are you know getting on in years or you want to retire or whatever um what's the what's the plan there what what does idrasil allow for at that point?
2: Yeah well I mean as every farmer's wish, I have three sons, so to have one of them take over would be amazing. That would be my dream. If that happens, that happens. Yeah. If it doesn't, that's great. Um, you know, I, I have no problem finding someone else that wants to take over. Um, but we are also with having uh, with having um, accessible, cheap not I don't want to say cheap rent. Let me say it, like affordable rent. There we go. If we have affordable rent, that allows us to build equity in other places. So you know, I have over 150 head. So there's equity there. I have all this equipment. Which equipment is a bad investment? Don't buy equipment just to invest things and in. so not to invest at all. But that is also an, for us. And also with affordable rent, it allows us to put money away, which is different for farmers. And so most farmers, we say, are very cash poor but equity rich. And we're kind of the opposite. We're we're some we're not cash rich, but we're cash flow strong, but equity poor. And so it's a different model to look at. And it's, it, there's a lot of models that have been successful for people. Um, and this is definitely one of them, especially for someone that's trying to get into it to allow themselves to put money away. Or if, you know, if you made enough money, it'd be great to pay yourself. Like I couldn't imagine. Oh, that'd be cool. Like if someone can, <laughs> that, that is our end all goal for us is to be able to be our own employees. And if we can pay ourselves, that would be the way we get out. And then eventually, hopefully keep the business running and pass it on or, you know,
1: to someone who wants to do it, it would be excellent great. okay okay very cool um so I, I do want to spend uh, the last bit of our time together talking about you know the the pizza on the farm and it, it's obvious that you have you you are realizing some of, of Christopher Mann's dreams about being a a community-based, Farm and resource here with the with your your pizza on the farm events. It's also one of those things that you know you just mentioned cash flow. A lot of people got into dairy initially early on because dairy produces a commodity that gets sold every day and they receive a check every two weeks or every month or whatever. And it's more regular than you know crop farming where the harvest is once a season. So you you have some cash flow benefits from that. You have some. Hopefully, I'd be interested to hear about uh pizza on the farm and how it is benefiting your financial picture overall your cash flow situation etc but before we get into all those details tell us about this phenomenon that is pizza on the farm at Grassway Organics. When did it start and how is it going?
2: Yeah, so I, I touched a little bit on it in the beginning and and like yep. we <laughs> we had it it's it's really great. I, I I have a lot of really good stories from it. Um, if anyone owns a restaurant and knows, it, it also gets very stressful at times. But um, for us, our goal was, eventually our goal is to produce 100% of the pizza's product. So it would be great to grow my own wheat. It would be great to have my milk shipped somewhere that can be made cheese and have it back to us. And to have, you know, all, it's all our own meat. It's You know, it's all our own sauce. But right now we'd like to get a little bit farther. So Pizza on the Farm has been growing at such a at such a rate that it, it has allowed us to have a viable option as this business. And so, um, we, like I said, we never planned on having pizzas and being pizza farmers, and it's still kind of a struggle between all of us and our marketing guys. Like People are like, oh, you're the pizza farm. You're like, well, no, we're not. We're actually Grassway, but we do pizza. <laughs> but people are – it's a pizza farm. So um, it's a really cool. Uh, it's an opportunity for people to come to a non-stereotypical restaurant. Um, and so to give kind of the layout all of our pizza we built a kitchen last year a full commercial kitchen um we have an old lean-to that originally they built to have sows so we gutted it and have this like beautiful we have wood-fired ovens we got three wood-fired ovens that are in it um and you come you order and we deliver it on a tray and that's it and it's always great to see the newcomers that don't have a clue what's going on and they're like well where do we sit like we don't know you go find a spot like hope you buy a blanket hope you have a (laughs) lawn chair i don't know like figure it out and the one the two rules we have on the farm is don't mess with the bull and don't touch the fence because it's really a, a <laughs> an opportunity for people to be involved at the farm and that was our end-all goal doing it was to get people to um, be part of our community and to be part of you know our farm what we've noticed now is that people who come to pizza on the farm really don't have much interest in grass-fed grass spinach beef or the people that are really interested in grass-fed, grass-finished beef don't want pizza. Um, it's been two type of marketing for us, which is kind of surprising. We didn't think that was going to be it. Our old goal was like, Man, "We'll grow pizza, and then we'll just sell them some steak," which is not the case. Um, we're trying to get more of a marketing plan that direction, but we're more than pizza. But with pizza in general, it really—it's very, very difficult to find anyone who's going to be upset you know, drinking beer and eating pizza. It's just, they're not going to be upset. It's just, those combinations are awesome. And then on top of it, you get on a setting like ours. I think it's really special for people to realize how, you know, like, this is our community. And that's really what has kept us to drive, besides being very viable financially. um, It also allows us to buy products from our local farmers, which is huge, because a lot of people, you know, we pay top premium price for all our products. You know, we pay for the best. Mm-hmm. We, we don't even know the menu until Friday because we don't know what vegetables are coming in from our local vegetable farmer. And it's really a different take on food in general. Um, the other thing that really has been like this is like one of my favorite stories that I tell. So I, I'm the people I'm the person that cooks the pieces on the oven. We have three wood fired ovens that sit around 800 to 1000 degrees. And sometimes, you know, we'll we'll be having five, six, seven pieces in the oven at a time. And then, you know, so I'm sweating It's July. I'm angry cause I'm so hot and I like feel someone tug on the back of my shirt and here I turn around like kind of like fearfully and here is this like beautiful old woman and she's like listen she's like this is the first restaurant I've been where no one's on their phone and I'm like oh my god like, they it was such a, it's such a spot and it's a place for people to meet new people and to bring their friends and family and so that really has driven us to keep going and getting expanding and getting bigger and it's just been wonderful and we with that you know sometimes we get so busy that there is an hour wait or an hour and a half hour wait so we have live music every friday and saturday which is really nice for people because if they just want to come and enjoy the music um the the bands play in the old barn so they play in the hay loft of the old barn that's looking over the whole place so I mean, it's just, it's an absolute wonderful setting for people to come and, and let everything go and be relaxed. And, you know, we were open during COVID because we are an outdoor venue, so that our county was totally on board with us staying open. And then we were one refuge for people to be like, hey, man, there's some normalcy left in the world. And that was really <laughs> a blessing for us. to was before that, you know, and to be able to give that to people. So, no, it, it started out really... <laughs> Like I said, we bought a food truck, a turnkey food truck from Michigan, and my wife and I would milk. we do our night milking, and then we'd clean up, and we'd get into the kitchen, and we would cook like 20 pizzas, just her and I. And we would be like, oh, wow, this is so cool. Like, this has potential, <laughs> you know. And then, yeah, I think this morning my wife hired on our 15th employee. For, for staff this year for pizza. so <laughs> You've got a been, whole different,
1: like, management scenario than you ever had, than you ever had expected. Like, okay, so the, what I'm curious about is on a typical pizza on the farm night, on a, on a Friday or a Saturday, what are people... Okay. One of the things that people get so concerned about with agritourism is liability, right? It's like, oh my God, we're going to have the public on our farm. They're going to trip and fall in a hole. They're going to get, they're going to touch the fence. They're going to do this and that and the other thing. Are people just kind of, are they crawling all over your farm like ants, like checking out things? Or are they in a designated area that they stand to stay close to the music? Or what does it look like? Give me a sense for the, the environment on the farm in one of those nights.
2: Yeah, so we, we're on the edge of the Kettle Moraine. So we are, I guess, we, <laughs> I don't want to say hilly, but we got lumps, we got big lumps, and we have oak savanna. <laughs> so when you come to the farm, we're actually set really high. And so you're basically on this, like, I would I was about to say a giant lump, and you actually look over our entire farm. From where you sit to eat, you can see my back, like, 400 acres. It's crazy how high up we sit. Um, and so that where that where the old barn is, place is at the highest point of our farm so you come up it's an old barn old milk house looks totally normal and then behind that is where we built our infrastructure and we have a massive area of grass where people can sit and how it's terraced then you're looking over our loafing shed which are which is our winter housing for the cows which last year we went completely solar so we went off the grid so the whole barn is now full of solar which is what exactly what you see when you eat and then you look all over the kettle moraine. So it's a really beautiful setting, um, you know, liability. There's always the fear of that. Um, and if anyone owns a farm, they already know how much they pay in liability. So yes, we have to pay for more insurance. I think we carry 7 million and then our landowners wow. carry another 7 million. Um, just case. In, in case something happens, you know, it's unfortunately, you know, you have to be prepared for those situations. Nothing has happened to us, knock on wood. Um, and I don't expect anything to um, happen, but, um, you know, we do have, um, what, I don't, yeah, I have to remember if it's Minnesota legal action. I can't remember. I went through a seminar exactly answering that question of liability. So we have visible signs saying that it is your responsibility um, if something were to happen. We know that this is, and I can't remember the program I went through. I should look it up again. Oh, renewing the countryside. I went to one of their sure. seminars on agritourism liability. Um, and they, we ended up buying like five signs from them. Um, and those are posted all over the farm. Um, and that is the help to liability, which our insurance required for us to have. Um, so we have five of those signs that are posted everywhere. Um, and, and, and honestly, like, you know, you, you think about it, this is like a really funny story. Like, so we do all our baleage and all our dry hay wrapped in bales. So instead of the mushrooms in the, or instead of the, um, marshmallows in the field, we just do a long tube line right? So I have okay. the first crop, you do around 600 bales. So there's this long line of plastic wrapped bales. And I don't know what it is that attracts kids. But pizza night, that thing is just up and down with kids. I mean, they're running. Up and <laughs> up and down, up and down. It is wild. We actually almost made a third of it because kids, I don't know what it is. Kids are just It's kind of like a trampoline kind of. But you know, at the end of the year, I have over 2000 bales wrapped on the farm. And you know, yes, If there's anyone that pokes holes in it, you lose quality and this and that. But the attraction that brings the kids is like the cheapest swing set you could ever have. It's wild. So it's really wonderful to see that the parents are up on the hill. They're having a wonderful time. They're eating, they're drinking, and then the kids are running on these bales and they can pretty much run anywhere. All our fences are marked. So unfortunately, if you're going to touch it, you're going to have a drink of coffee because it's it's rough. Um, But generally, if the cows aren't anywhere near if they aren't near pizza, then most of the fences are off Because just because I don't – yeah, I don't want the hot stove to be a lesson because our fence is really hot, not fun. So you generally, those will be off. But in most cases, I try to have the cows close so people can actually, like, see the cows grazing right in the field next to where they're eating, you know, because that's always the thing. But unfortunately, we had a bad drought last year, so it didn't happen um, too many times. But the year before that, I think we were grazing right next to pizza on the farm almost every weekend. So. That's always nice to see people. And that's the other thing that people don't, like, don't have access to. They don't even, like, how many, like, you drive, you know, you're driving down the road on Highway 43 past some semi that has, like, some milk, and there's cows eating grass. You know, for a fact, those cows aren't eating grass, but no one gets to see that. But that's, like, the picture of nostalgia (laughs) when you think, like, man, I see cows. And when you see cows at peace grazing, you're like, man, this is it. Like, all cows should be like this. And I think that's really great for people to see, to realize that there are still people doing that. Not all cows are locked up in barns. And that really just brings, I think it brings happiness. to It brings happiness to me. That's why I love doing this, is grazing. But that is always like a picture of when you come to Pizza on the Farm, generally you're going to see somebody grazing. Um, this year we actually, um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to talk about this or not, but the VAPG, we won the VAPG grant last year, which is paying for a marketing guy this so this year we ended up having, like, a we put up signs. So we put up signs next to our greenhouse where the chickens are in the winter, and then it has a sign saying, well, this is where our chickens go in the winter. And then we have signs to show them, like, okay, if you want to take a walk, you can walk back in our oak savanna and see this and that. And so that project was just completed, and so we're excited to see how that works because I would love for people to be able to be like, hey, this is your farm. Respect our farm. Respect our privacy. You know, just respect our stuff. But at the same time, go walk in the oak savannah. You know, I have access to like 600 beautiful acres that I wish everybody had access to to see. And so this is the time for them to be like, hey, you know what, go for a walk, go see the cows, you know, go walk through the savannah. See how, you know, make it part of you and make it part of your your life, because I, we've been so blessed to have it. I hope other people would be able to take
1: advantage of it as well. I mean, you, you've done a great job describing the aesthetic. And I, I, I want to point out that, you know, it does, it's, it feels very, you know, Switzerland or perhaps Norway in this case, right? It's like the cows, they have, they're brown, they have horns, they have ear tags with names in them, the names like fern and fart and freedom and, <laughs> and those kind of things. So like the, it really tugs on the, on the heartstrings. Like this is like, this is you know, Wisconsin dairy, right? This is what it should look like. This is cows on hills with horns eating grass and all that. So yeah, it, it, the, the aesthetic is, is wonderful, but like, so you just brought up something really interesting with the value added producer grants. And we've had uh, quite a few farmers on this podcast who have, who have talked about their experience with uh, that, uh, that grant making program from the USDA rural development and how it's been sort of, um, pretty life-changing, pretty business-changing. Um, so I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about, we, we always try to get to the financial side here on this podcast, right? Actionable intel around finance for farmers and food businesses. And so value-added producer grants up to uh, a quarter of a million dollars in working capital over the course of a couple of years. Uh, how is that working? What are you using it for? And also, how has pizza on the farm? change the sort of financial trajectory of of your business as well
2: yeah great questions um yeah farming is a, is a very very tough business investment it, it's the only industry that we buy retail we sell wholesale and we pay for shipping both ways so you got to understand there's not a lot of profit in farming and, and the way we do things there is but we're in a very unique situation. I don't expect everyone to take on the stress load that we do um, doing what we do. So pizza on the farm is extremely viable for us. Um, that okay. being said, it comes it comes with adding employees. It comes with the stresses of that. It comes with, you know, most people are like, oh, I'll just order from Cisco. I think we have like 47 distributors that we work with to get local products mm. or farm. So we are like continuously stressed out trying to find the product we need for that week, let alone like in just a week, we only do it two, two days a week. You know, we don't do it year round. So it's like, it's even stressful for us to get all that ready to go. Um And we have some friends that actually used to farm and she got into grant writing for the VAPG and she'd been hounding me for like four years to apply for it. And I was just like, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know. anyone knows a stubborn farmer government money is, is, is is different you got to really consider it but she finally convinced me and we're like all right let's do it we're at the stage that we need it um and the value added producers grant um is how we basically panned out it panned out for us to pay for the marketing employees so and it also helped us pay for just getting help like my wife and i it's pretty funny because the other day she was like almost in tears and i was like what's going on she's like there was four people that came down for packaging day. Do you remember when it was just me and you? And you're like, man, like I do, I, I don't, I don't, you know, it's been so long, but it's so wonderful that I now have people that are part of my family that are now my employees because, you know, we can afford to do it. And the VAPG, mm. brand, how we were ours came in and basically was like, okay, you need, I need a workforce. Like, and, and there, we were in a different situation because like, for instance, one of our biggest, Gripes. Uh, I would my gripe as I used to run Instagram and Facebook, and someone would send a message, and I would maybe check once every three months, and I'd be like, ghost <laughs> I'd have people email us, we just ghost them because we didn't have the time. You know, we we're trying to keep cows alive keep the pizza going. And it was just, it was the last thing on our back burner, which ended up really hurting us as a business. Cause if we had just took the time, we would have had the sales. And so when we wrote mm-hmm. our BAPG, it was like, we need to focus on what we called low hanging fruit, because I have tons of people that want to be part of our farm. We just go them. So we have now an infrastructure where I have a full-time employee that just answers emails, just answers calls, just does Instagram, just does Facebook and just takes care of answering the people that want to be a part of our community which has been huge for us. Like it's been, it's been wild. Um, you know, it sounds awesome. Aside, it's not, yeah, it's, it is great. And then someone asked me the other day, like, Oh yeah, I sent you a message. I was like, Oh, okay, great. I don't, I don't, I'm not on it anymore. And that for me was like a mental health <laughs> thing for me as well to try to keep everything going. It's like, I don't want to do that and I'm, I'm not good at it and I want to be a part of it. And now relieving that stress on someone who enjoys it and someone who's really good at it. It's like, they it make them happy, I'm like, man, this is awesome. So the Value Added Producers Grant really kind of helped us get to the point where we could start taking on new customers. You know, because the other other issue that a lot of, you know, I'm sure you might even talk about on this podcast before, is the, the bottleneck of butchering. Like, we are running into a crisis when it comes to trying to get animals butchered in our state. And it is wild right now. So people can't get in and COVID and all this other stuff. COVID shut down all these plants. And so we were luckily enough to have a really long-term relationship with our butchers where we were able to build, like, to, to grow every single year based on, we didn't know the numbers. We're just like, let's just keep growing and we'll figure it out from there. And so we kind of lucked out in that sense that we're able to take on more customers because there's, I'm sure there's a lot of farmers out there that would love to sell more, but they can't get in, so they don't do it. So with that pizza also filled that niche for us. Like if that would have been something that we couldn't have done, like, okay, we can still sell them pizza or mm. okay. We can make frozen pizzas and still sell them. Like we would still have that income coming in. Um, so that is really, and I, I, I actually do talk to a lot of young farmers that are trying to get in and want to do it. And you have to think outside the box. Um, And when it comes to government money or government loans, you know, if you're familiar with it, it's hard to be outside the box. If you don't fit in the peg, they're like, Oh, I don't know. I don't, you're like, all right, let's just talk about this. But now in the last 10 years, farm, you know, small CSA vegetable farms running four acres are now more viable than guys running 2000 acres of cash cropping. You know, they're looking at CSA Mm. models that said now COVID has just boosted CSA sales. You know, there's been all this sort of changes and it, it's nice to see, but as the government works, they, they tend to work a little bit slower than reality. But now we're finally seeing these <laughs> programs be able to be utilized by people like myself and other farmers of our stature that, you know, are young, beginning, trying to think outside the box and trying to survive in any other way than the commodity. Like the commodity doesn't work anymore. That's why, you know, dairies are so big and crash croppers are so huge at this point. Because it doesn't work and it doesn't work for young farmers. So I really would encourage anyone that is in the situation to do a VAPG grant. Um, we paid for it. We didn't write it. I am, I am not good at any of that, and I was more than willing and happy to pay someone to do it for us because that was not in my. I was not going to sit down all winter to write a grant. And writing a grant is also very um, technical. You need to know the right terms to say and how to say it. Um, so yeah. working with a company that do that is definitely a must. I don't know if anyone has done it on their own. I actually, don't know anyone has done it on their own. But um, so that is kind of a must, and as well as then being able to have your records very clean and keep all your records clean, so that every single month when you submit it to the government, they're happy. Because if they're happy, then you get paid. And that that's a really big thing. I didn't realize. I was like, oh, I thought that just gave us three thousand. No, that's not how it works. Um, so it's <laughs> it's been uh, quite quite a, an interesting dynamic for us to allow us to grow in the way we have and that was all because right. of VAPG grants
1: and why. well and the idea is that the benefit that is being created the revenues that are being created the community that's being created by staffing up like you have through the vapg in theory after the three-year project is over you're going to be able to keep that marketing marketing employee around you're going to be able to keep some of your pizza on the farm staff around because it's helped your farm generate the additional revenues is that the basic idea
2: absolutely yeah and it's funny too because i have a lot of people like oh let's stimulate the economy i'll stimulate the economy i was like man you should just pay farmers because if you pay farmers man every rural community would be surviving right now because it's so (laughs) people don't realize how big the system we are like we're such we don't go we don't we don't go to walmart we don't shop in I shop at my local hardware store i shop at my local lumber yard like all farmers are in the same boat as me and it's, it's wild to think like if we had an infrastructure where we could make enough money to be viable like all rural communities would start you know thriving again and, and i think that's kind of how the vapg grant kind of came together because they're also realizing now the government's realizing like oh crap like you know, we're subsidizing these big guys so much now that they're only surviving because of subsidies. Like, when is a little guy in it? What are we doing with the little guy? What are we doing here? How are we doing with these people? And that's—it's really great to see because I didn't—I didn't have much faith in that five years ago. And you know, unfortunately, the world pandemic in, in most cases really opened people's eyes to be like, well, where is my food coming from? Okay, why are why are there why are there truckloads of milk being dumped? What is going on with yeah. that? Where is the food system? People so disconnected with the food system but it's very easy to hop on my you know our website order some food and it's going to be there that week like that is really really you know people are starting to move more towards that like starts start to support our local communities and starts to support our farmers and you know to have the infrastructure takes a lot but it's not it's not hard it's not far-fetched it's not it's not something that can't be done and so i'm really grateful that the government or not the government but these programs are put in place now to help people like us because I didn't think it was doable. You know, I didn't think that was possible 10 years ago. I thought it was like, all right, I need grow more corn and get more corn seed and get more land and get more dead and get more John Deere. It's like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> and I hope it does work for other people, but it doesn't work for young farmers getting into it. And that's a huge, huge thing that people have to realize, that if they want food and they want farming to continue, they're going to have to support the systems that are thriving. And in those cases, it's systems like ours, which are direct to consumer or, you know, write at that person, or I can support this. Or even if one family says, Hey, one time a month, we're going to go and spend money on pizza at this farm. That money stays right here. It doesn't go anywhere else. And that's, it, I think that the pandemic has really helped with people realizing that, that it's, you know, it's, it's not good to go to Walmart every day. Like your local businesses need you. Like we need you in our community and, you know, and these, you know, and I hope that that's changing and that's becoming more of a reality for people to realize that we are here that our farm's surviving everyone's trying to make it we're we're, we're in this together trying to figure it out and um you know it's it's, it's great it's, it's really wonderful to see how supportive our community has been for us and that's it's huge it's really really huge
1: okay last but not least here Chaz. we're running out of time but i wanted to ask you so what proportion of your 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 revenues or your profitability does pizza on the farm represent compared to the the more you know you're not traditional in any regard but like the the the, the regular like farm commodities that you're producing and would you recommend other farmers get into this space i mean obviously as long as they weren't in your backyard <laughs> yeah.
2: No, it, it, the more there are, the more there is, the merrier, in my mind. I mean, I, I we're in a we're in a league of our own, and and I, I I have a lot of people that call for a lot of information that they want, and I have no problem helping them doing it. Uh, agritourism is a wonderful way to bring revenue onto your farm, whether it's Burger Tuesdays or whatever your idea is, or pizzas or whatever it is, or farm tours or what it is. People are so interested and curious right now on where food comes from, and being able to have them on your farm, it is very easy to sell it once they're here. It's hard to get them here, but once they're here, it's easy to sell it. Right? It's going to sell itself, especially if you have a high-end
0: product. Mm-hmm.
2: So pizza, yeah, it's it, it, it's strange because we're still we're still we're still grasping the fact that people that come for pizza don't come for grass-fed beef. But we need to change that. Right. right. That's going to be our marketing goal is to be like, hey, since you're here, did you know that our cows only eat fresh grass year round? And this is how it supports our regenerative, our, our regenerative land. And this is how it supports our community. This is where our money stays. So that marketing's coming. But, you know, on revenue senses, I would say it's probably about 40 to 50 percent. We're probably about half and half right now um, compared to. Wow. And. People have to think, like, holy crap, like, if I added 50% more revenue, you'd be like, whoa, all right, now we're getting somewhere. Granted, you know, that took a lot. It, it, it takes a lot of infrastructure, and it takes a lot of trial and error. And not everybody yeah. is cut out to have, you know, 400 people on your farm every Friday. Not everyone is cut out for that, and I'm not saying everyone should do that, but it's a very viable way for you to make become successful. Very, very. And, of course, you know, it added, you know... <laughs> Now I have an employees, which is cool to think. I have that many employees, and then you have to get into taxes with the state and all this other stuff. It adds another, um, you know, level of, to your business. Um, but it, it really is financial benefit for everybody, as well as community benefit. And we got to understand in a world that seems like it's falling apart, when they're able to come to a farm and be like, Hey, this is my farmer. I feel this. My cow. This cow's name is Fart. You believe that? Like this is really growing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful thing that's happening. And I don't want to say, it. and like everyone's like, oh, you know, it's like, I always love this. Like, the revolution will start when you start to shake the hand of your farmers, because that's when it's going to start. It's not going to start in the middle. It's not all oh, these guys. And everyone's like, oh, how can farmers not be getting paid when everything in the grocery store is way up? But well, farmers aren't getting paid anymore. I can tell you that right now. Everything else is way up through the distributor line and through the chain. And why not get rid of those They're not get rid of them? Because there's a place in time for them. But why don't we encourage more local purchases to your actual farmers? And that's, you know, I think it's been really growing, it's been growing a lot, honestly.
1: Chaz, I love that. I think we're going to leave it right there. Like that's a that's a wonderful sentiment to finish up on. Uh, we so, so very much appreciate you taking some time with us this morning to talk about your farm and your business model and uh, the finances and some of the, the beautiful mental pictures you've created and everything for uh, the listeners that we've got here. So can't thank you enough. Uh, we really appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha and the Food Finance Institute by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.